So this evening, I would like to talk about a few things. And first, I'd like to talk about the retreat itself, that we have done uh, three full days, and we have another four full days. And I think what is important is to remember why you came here. You came here because, in a way, we can also meditate at home. But you came here because to have the opportunity in a very defined environment to cultivate the meditation. And so I think, in a way, we have to remember a little the reason for why we choose to come here in this environment, where we are in silence, where we have a schedule. And so I would like to remind us that the silence, there is a point to the silence. I mean, of course, like for the health and safety, there is also a practical aspect of the silence. But I think also, the silence is a tool as much as a sitting, as a walking, as a working. And so, I mean, some times ago, there was a, a teacher, a Tibetan teacher who was teaching with uh, Vipassana teachers. And they told him the, if they taught together, the retreat would be in silence. And so he understood that silence meant you could speak softly. Until after two or three retreats, he understood silence means not talking. And I know it is a little challenging not to talk when you think, well, I could easily say this, or I could easily say that, and it will just be a few words. But if there is urgency, if there is an emergency, then you can talk to us, you can talk to the coordinator. But as an exercise, can we really be silent? I mean, when I did that month's retreat, personally, I take it very seriously. If we're in silence, I'm in silence. So I was in total silence the whole time. I mean, Stephen was on the retreat too. But the only thing I did was once a day during his working period, which was different from mine, I would come and smile for a second, and then I would go. That's all. I did not talk to him for a month. Because I thought, this is a challenge, but it's also part of the practice. Can I be with other people without talking? And I know personally, uh, the silence is, I think, revealing about what do we need to say? Do I need to say that? Do I really, really need to say that? And I think with the silence during the retreat, it helps us afterward in daily life with appropriate speech, compassionate speech. So I would really encourage you to really respect the silence. And it's not only the silence for yourself, but it's also the silence for others in a way, respecting other people's silence. And then there is a schedule. And I know, I am very aware, I mean, if you were on a going car retreat, you would have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, go to bed, have very little free time, no very little walking time, and if you did not come to sit, they would come and get you. You know, and if you did anything untoward, they would get you. So personally, I think this is a little too much. This is not my type. I am not a, kind of a, a military chief to always you know, be behind you and checking on you. I'm also aware that you have different conditions. So for some of you, it's easy, relatively easy, possible to do the full schedule. For some of you, I'm aware that due to different physical conditions, 
It is difficult, especially to sit, or maybe to do the walking meditation. But personally, what I would really encourage you is that even if you cannot sit in the room, that you use that time to sit outside or to do lying down meditation in your bedroom. You might not be able to do the walking meditation, but you can do a little bit, sit, or lie down. So that those time are really dedicated to meditation, because that's what you came here for, is to cultivate meditation. And nobody can do it for you. So of course, I cannot oblige you to do it. But I would really suggest to use opportunity to the full. And then we leave some quite good time for free time. And of course, free time is free. So you can go for good walks, you can do exercise, you can read. And so in a way, too, the schedule is done in a certain way to really help you with the practice. So I hope that these next four days, you will, in a way, see what I would call the opportunity. You came to have this opportunity. So in a way, to really use it. Then I wanted to talk about pasadi. So pasadi is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, of awakening. And pasadi can be translated as repose, serenity, tranquility. And so here, how can we be serene? How can we be tranquil? How can we rest? But really rest. And so, what does it mean to be serene? What does it mean to be tranquil? And why is it important on the path of awakening? And so personally, I think this is, over time, it's kind of something to cultivate, something to consider. So I think you can see it in different ways. I mean, in terms of the retreat, we could see as the retreat go on, am I able to be more tranquil? Is my body, my mind, my heart having a little more tranquility? And so today, mindfulness of the body. And I think it's kind of in a way for us to notice. We want to sit still. Of course, we don't want to be rigid. But what does that do to sit still? To me, actually, is a sitting still with not too much moving kind of create within ourselves kind of like a stable ground. And that's why I found interesting to how is it when we watch TV? You know, I presume most of us have the opportunity to watch TV or watch a tablet or whatever. But generally, you watch TV and you like, okay, start like this, and you go like that, and you go like that, and you go like that. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like, yeah, we're trying to get ourselves comfortable. It's very interesting. And what is interesting with the city is that at some point, I would say we need to find a way to be comfortable, which means that we we might move once or twice, because of course different people have different conditions, but that it be on a chair on the floor to feel yes. When I'm sitting, it's not like torture, so I, I want to move all the time, but over time I can really rest in the posture. And through the posture, you know, we can have some kind of stability emerging, which actually is a physical stability. And I would say this is, in a way, one of the points of the sitting, of sitting. I'm not saying that's the only posture, but I think that's one of the points of that posture. To sit, to try to sit still, tranquil, if we can. And so that 
through that, there is this whole repose, what they call repose, to rest. As I sit in the, it's interesting as we sit, often we kind of tense, we kind of, it's like we're forcing the meditation. And so the idea of pasadi is, how can I sit and just be there? And so there is this groundedness. And that's why the image of the mountain. But then, if we cultivate this in the sitting, how can I take that in the walking, in the moving? And then it's kind of nearly like we have this um, ground within like our belly, like in our feet, that although I am moving, I can still have that tranquility. And this is something we can play with actually in daily life in the supermarket. To me, this is one of the great places of practice is a queue in the supermarket. And so we are not, in my little village in France, we are not with the checking like you have nowadays in England. In the big town, you have lots of this checking and you go faster. But in France, in my little village, we still have quite a few queues. <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting when you are there, waiting, kind of nearly willing the people to go faster, the cashier to go faster, and there is this, I would say, untranquility. But then if you decide to, do, to cultivate pasadi, it's a metamorphosis. You just stand, and there is nowhere to go. You just stand there. And then you feel that tranquility. And I think often in daily life, it's the same. Sometimes we, in a way, we agitate ourselves and things like that. And then to consider, how can I cultivate pasadi? How can I cultivate tranquility now? Or maybe somebody might say something difficult to you, a little kind of, you know, frightening. Oh, how can I be tranquil with it? How can I, in a way, hold my ground in this moment? How can I be here in a tranquil manner? And so, in a way, it's to look. It's something to cultivate. It's one of the factors of awakening. So how can I work with that? Which to me is also kind of learning to rest in the moment. To me, this is something that we learn here. I know in our life, we don't have much choice. There is it, there is that to take care of. And so how can we bring tranquility in this? And often, actually, it's through the body. It's first through the body. And I think that's why the mindfulness of the body is important. Because that will help us to be tranquil. Even if the conditions are not tranquil. I mean, uh, recently I was in um, teaching in Australia and I just had to go and teach uh, 70 people for the day, and at uh, 7.30, I was uh, washing a cup, and it broke, and it slashed my finger. And so lots of blood, and, <gasps> and I was thinking, 70 people, this. And then, you know, I went, fortunately, the lady of the house was uh, medical something, and so we strapped it. And later on, we could take care of it. But I could feel, in a way, the, the buzzing of just a thing happening, the viewing the blood, and, and then, consciously, I went actually to Pasadena. Just be there. And so from being like that, within a few seconds, I was just tranquil. And it was really very interesting how so quickly the tranquility could come in and how we could make it easier for other things. And I saw also the same thing recently with my mother. 
why in the middle of the night I hear some noise, I finally get up and find her covered in blood, like lots of blood, blood everywhere. I felt like I was in a kind of a, one of these shows where, you know, there is blood everywhere and they kind of, and ICIS or this kind of thing. Because I was kept discovering blood here and I was thinking, how did it get there, you know, and there? How did that get there? And so she was covered in blood at five o'clock in the morning. And I, felt, I was like, first, it was a shock. I mean, and then I could see that to be shocked was not going to help. And actually what was help, would help was passivity, tranquility. And so immediately I went into the body. I went into the tranquility quality and I did what I had to do, which was see that the blood had stopped, so it must be like a cut in the cranium, that she was tired, I, I brought her back to being present and not hallucinating, and I put her to bed. And the next morning, the doctor came, and then we took care of things. But both times, the quality that was helpful was passade, was tranquility, was finding a way. And so to me, this is what we do on a retreat. On a retreat, by the sitting, the walking, the mindfulness, then this helps us to cultivate passadi. And we can also cultivate it by this trying to, to connect with it, to see that actually it is there. Over time, I can connect to that quality. And by actually going to that quality in the body, it seems to be more there. I seems to have more ability to connect with it, to use it. And I think that's why it's a factor of awakening. And so within that, I think with this passadi, there is also this idea, it seems to me, to rest in the moment, to meet the moment, to meet the experience, and so I would say a notion of acceptance. Because notice, when often we might be like in the queue in the supermarket or like in different aspects of our lives, we can be in a fighting mode. We can be in a wear your mode. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and it's going to be like this. And, and so there is this kind of like, agitation, frustration. It should be this way, and why is it not that way? And you know, what about this, what about that? And what is interesting is that as soon as we accept, like in a way we move from the warrior fighting to accepting. I'm not saying you should not fight and be a warrior, but I think if you do it from possibly a different place, that as soon as you accept it, oh, this is what's going on. So that you, in a way, rest in the experience. This is what's happening. It might be unpleasant, it might be difficult, it might be not what I hope for, but this is what's happening. And what is interesting with acceptance is that immediately when you accept something, in that way, there is tranquility. It's kind of like, immediately, it's kind of feel like, like, you know, it's like a burden, a weight shift, and it's, whew. And I had, many years ago, I had that experience, and it became very clear to me then that my grandmother was still alive, and so I was uh, playing dominoes with her to occupy her in the afternoon. And it was autumn, and there was lots of leaves, and she did not like leaves because they were dangerous. And so we would be sitting, and then she would say, oh, there are five leaves. I need to sweep them up. So I would say, don't worry, I'll do it. So we get up, sweep the leaves, back to the domino. And she would, so I would get up, back to the domino. And then a third time she looked, so okay. 
And the third time, something within me was kind of saying, you know, I mean, what's the fun of that? You know, playing domino, sweeping a few leaves now and then. I mean, how heroic is that? How important is that in the scheme of things, you know? Should not I be doing something a little more exciting, meaningful, or whatever it was? And then there was this kind of like knowing in that moment, acceptance in that moment, that there is nothing else to do. There was nothing else to be. And that moment there was this incredible peace, this incredible tranquility. And then after that, it was like the things were flowing. And so to me, with this pasadi, I think it's very much about that movement of acceptance. And so often when we hear the word acceptance, we think of resignation. If I accept this, then I am resigning myself to it. But to me, resigning, resignation is not acceptance because actually it is not peaceful. It is not tranquil, that kind of acceptance. But the acceptance we're talking about here is that in a way, fully knowing, being what is happening, and then in a way, creatively engaging with it. And sometimes the acceptance is to just be there, is to just be with it. I mean, I had a friend who was dying of leukemia, and he was in a hospice. And so he was a very good friend, so we went every day to see him. And I was so aware there was nothing we could do. The only thing we could do was to be there. And in a way, what helped us to be there was that tranquility, that acceptance. This is what's going on. But it doesn't mean we cannot be there with this tranquility. And once I was um, visiting an old lady in a nursing home regularly, because her, her, her daughter had lots of difficulty and was a friend, I wanted to help. And after a while, you know, I kept going there, and then my uh, friend, the daughter, said to me, you know what she likes about you? that in that place, everybody is always kind of moving, kind of busy and things, and you come, and she can just be tranquil with you. You bring tranquility. And her mother was a Quaker, so that's why it was so precious to her, that at least one person once a week came to see her, and she could feel it. She could reconnect to that quality. She had cultivated for so long in those Quaker meeting of tranquility. And so I think in a way, the tranquility, the acceptance is, because you see, when I went to see the lady the first time, I had grand master plan of all kinds of it until I realized she just wanted me to be quiet. <laughs> and I thought, I, I can't do that easily. But this is something we can actually give to others. It doesn't mean that we are, that we are tranquil. It doesn't mean that we are passive. But I think this tranquility is really a gift. A gift to yourself, but also a gift to others. How can I, in a way, share this with others? And to me, this is, in a way, one of the things we can do in daily life, is by coming back to that quality, enabling it to help others. This is what I see with my mother a lot. My job is actually, a lot of the time, to be tranquil. And if I lose the tranquility, to come back to it. Because it's such a resource for me, but also for her, it kind of like she can feel it. It kind of helps her to be less agitated. So in a way, it's something we can cultivate, but it's also a gift 
we can give to others. And then I wanted a little to talk about mindfulness of the body and why it was so important. Because I think it's really an important tool in our daily life. Because in our daily life, often we are really, we have to think so fast. We have to kind of, you know, do all kinds of things. And so we kind of always preparing, planning, etc., etc. And so we all, for, I think often it's kind of like our brain is ahead of ourselves and we're kind of trying to catch up, you know, with all this. And I think mindfulness of the body is to reground, not only in the body, but in the environment. Because the body is always in the environment, on the ground. And so I would say this is really a tool to use in daily life, to come back to the sensation of contact. And that's why I put so much emphasis on just being aware of the sensation of contact, washing the dishes, feeling the wind, feeling the earth, feeling the clothes, just being aware of the sensation of contact, that we connect to the world a lot through that sensation of contact. So coming back to that, that sensation of contact. But also with mindfulness of the body, what is interesting is to see how so quickly we identify. So you have this idea of not-self. But what does that mean, this not-self? Basically, not-self doesn't mean that we don't exist. But it means that we are a flow of conditions. So we are a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And so with that dense of this condition, that's why I call it a flow of conditions. And so, with this flow of conditions, often what happens is where does our identity go? So not-self doesn't say we don't have an identity. But not-self is saying that we have a processual identity. We don't have a fixed identity. The identity is relatively constant because generally the body is relatively constant and there is something which are a bit constant. But within that, they can be changed. Changed because of the weather, changed because of circumstances, changed because of illness. So often, what happens is that there is this flow of conditions that forms us, which are the which are the thought, the feeling, the sensation, how we meet the environment, etc., etc. So you have all these different conditions that forms you, who you are at any given moment. But often what happens is that we grasp and identify with one of the conditions. So we might suddenly identify with a thought and be totally caught and become the thought. Or we might identify with an emotion and become nearly that emotion, that identity is my emotion. Or we might identify with a sensation. It could be a pleasant sensation or it could be an unpleasant sensation. But to see that if we identify with a sensation, then actually the thing is that when we identify and we grasp just as one of the things that forms us, then we magnify it. And so that's why I think mindfulness of the body is interesting, because in some part of the body you don't have any, the sensation as fairly neutral, not much is going on. And all the parts of the body, there are more sensation. And then we might easily identify with that sensation. So you have a pain in the knee, it becomes my knee, and it becomes like 
My whole identity goes there. Or we have an illness and we reduce our identity to the illness. I mean, I have a friend who had uh, cancer recently. And, and she does meditation and she said it was so helpful because she could see the, the tendency to just be the cancer instead of being a theater actress who was a mother, who had a family, who had certain creativity, etc. And so she said, whenever I could see the whole, then in a way, the illness had its proper place. But if she becomes kind of, you know, totally stuck with the illness, it was like she was just sad and she could not see anything else. And so in a way, it's to see how, what do we do when we have sensation in the body? Do we, in a way, grasp at the sensation? In a way, our identity residing in the sensation. And it can be also Someone was talking about sexuality. And what is sexuality? I mean, if you have sex or whatever nature. I mean, I, at the moment, I read uh, Sherman Alexi, who is a Native American uh, writer and poet. And he's very big on masturbation. You know, you read any book of his, and it's a lot about that. And also lots of other sexual things. So, I mean, he's banned often because one of his books is recommended for library from school. And that's how I got to know him, because recently they've been trying to ban him. So every time you ban a book, everybody becomes interested in it. So <laughs> I heard about him before, but this time I thought, I'm going to read it. And so what is a sexual feeling? Generally, unless you have trouble of certain nature, it's a pleasant sensation. So. Is it part of the whole thing? Or is it where your identity resides? I have this pleasant sensation. This pleasant sensation is me. And I just want more of it. So I think the thing is not, you have pleasant sensation, why not? But you reduce yourself to that. Because if you have sex with somebody, then are you thinking of your own pleasant sensation? Or are you thinking of their own pleasant sensation? Or are you just totally identifying with your sensation? To me, that's what is interesting about the sexuality, is what's going on? Is it just pleasant sensation, an exchange of pleasant sensation? And how much do we identify with those sensations? How much are we sharing them or not? Is it within the context of love, which will then add another dimension? Or et cetera, et cetera. Is it forcing somebody else so that I have pleasant sensation and I can't, don't care about what the other person think or feel or whatever? So it's kind of like pleasant or unpleasant sensation happen in the body. And what do we do with them? Do we identify? I mean, it's also, in a way, the shape, the form. I mean, we kind of all have a certain physicality. And I think one of the, one of the interesting exercises, as a meditation exercise, is when we look at ourselves in the mirror. You know, you look at yourself in the mirror. Hmm. You know, what do you do with that? I mean, basically, you're seeing your body. You're seeing your face. How do you identify with that face or not? Or do you identify with how it should be? So you look, I mean, that's also something we do with the body, is we compare to how it looks to how it should be. What I found interesting with uh, my mother-in-law, was that she never recognized herself. Oh, no, I'm not that old. It was very interesting. It was kind of like, I am not that old person. You know, and I can recognize a little with my mother when we go shopping. 
she started to say, I don't like shopping because then I have to look at myself in the mirror and I look fat. And so if she doesn't see herself in the mirror, then she, <laughs> she doesn't notice. She might be a little kind of plump, you know? <laughs> and so it's interesting because you identify with I am thin, I am plump, as we say about our cat. We have a cat and everybody comes and they identify him, the poor thing, and they say he's fat. <laughs> and we say he's heavy built. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you have a shape, you have a form, and how do you relate to that? And I think that's what also mindfulness of the body is in terms of the change. To me, that's what is fascinating. Sometimes you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, you look great. You really, you think, mm, yeah, I'm okay. I look great. There is a little kind of, you know, sparkling brightness. Yeah, I'm okay with the way I look. And so you think, yeah, that's my identity. And then another time you look at yourself in the mirror and you look really drag and drawn and, and you think like, wait a minute, that's not me. And so this I think is, is very interesting exercise to see what is, what forms my identity in terms of my body. How do I relate to my body? And I think that's what we can do with the cultivation of mindfulness of the body's work with that relationship. So that's what I wanted to talk about. But then I got two interesting notes, and I thought I'd like to finish with that. One was about yesterday we were talking about compassion, and loving-kindness. And so basically the, the, the question is about how far can loving-kindness go? How far can compassion go? So am I supposed to have compassion with some politician I don't agree? Uh, their policy, for example. And so the, the questioner is saying, like my friend is saying, that politician is evil. And I'm saying, no, 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 he's not evil. He's a human being with inappropriate policies. <laughs> but how much can I have compassion or loving kindness toward that politician? And I think, in a way, that's where wisdom comes in. I think that's where wisdom, you see, I think what we learn through the meditation process is at one level, there is a certain equality in terms of we all human beings who are breathing and whose life rests upon a single breath. So at one level, yes, we are equal. But at another level, we are all different. We have different conditions, we have different circumstances. And so I think when we say that we want to cultivate loving kindness, when we want to cultivate compassion, I think we have to be careful to see it in a totalizing way or in too much of an abstract manner. Because the idea is not just to keep saying, I love all sentient beings equally to the same degree all the time. I don't think that's the idea. I think the idea is more within the relationship around me, how can I bring some loving kindness? How can I bring some compassion? Within the world I inhabit, how can I bring compassion? How can I bring loving kindness. So I think we have to be careful to go to that totalizing. This means if I cultivate loving kindness and if I say may all sentient beings be happy, it means it's everybody totally to the same degree. No, I think it's like all things, 
It's conditional. And like all things, it's also impermanent. So I think it's more kind of, in a way, looking at the intention, but looking wisely. So when I was, um, for a short a little while, when I was in England, I was a part of a trust for a refuge for battered women. And uh, I would say that, yes, you know, if you are a battered woman, you have to get out earlier than later, you know, and you might consider the person a human being, they might have a potential, but maybe you don't want to wait for their potential to be realized at some point in time, if they finally decide to work on it. I think you get out and you might, you know, wish them well from afar, as, as far as you can be. So I think it's really, we need to bring wisdom. We also need to see that if we go, like if we decide, the person is evil, evil, I must get rid of them, and then we will have wonderful policies. I mean, it doesn't seem to work that way, you know? You get rid of one, you get another one, and you know. And so I think, you know, this is what civil society is about. And I would hope all of us, in our small or big way, depending on our condition. I mean, a few years ago, at the end of the retreat on the last Monday, on the last morning, we, we have a sharing. And a few weeks, a few years ago, suddenly one person started to speak and I went, oh, my heroine. You know, somebody, you know, I don't, didn't know her personally, but I really, respected the people who did that work when I was uh, too young, in a way, to participate in it. And this person just was telling us, oh yeah, recently I went to jail, and it was much nicer this time than the last time, thanks to the meditation. And this was because uh, she was part of the CND, was against nuclear powerhead and things, and there were the people who recently, I think last year, or a few years back, uh, they went into and then they poured blood over it or did a few things which were mildly damaging. And then, you know, they go to court and then they were made an example and she spent two very good months in jail, actually, you know, and helping out with a lady, meditating and things. And to me, that, I'm really inspired when I see that, that actually we're all part of this society. And so... The compassion is a wise compassion. How can I help this society to be more civil? And I think that through that, over time, there can be a transformation. So in a way, but it has to be wise. It's that to be wise. It has to be creative. How we try to partake in this civil society. And some will be more courageous, heroic than others, like this lady. And some will have just do a little bit. I think, again, we, we have to be careful to think we must be all heroic, or I cannot do anything. To me, it's each in our own work, in my own work, in our own place. How can we help with that? How can we bring a little bit of it in the society, in the village? And then the... The other point, which was actually quite well uh, with this one, was about the balance between one's needs and others people need. And I think what is very important to see is, again, there is a spectrum about loving kindness, about compassion. There is a spectrum, so at one end there is you, at the other there is others, and then sometime you will go more toward others, sometime will go more toward yourself, and sometime you will be more in the middle. But there is no place which is better than others. There is no sacred place on that continuum. Generally, it depends on condition. So sometime you can really be there for somebody, but generally this will be limited because you have limited resource, limited time, limited energy. But sometimes you can rise to the challenge. And then at some point, 
you have to let it be. And sometimes you are ill yourself. So you have to take care of yourself. And sometimes you find yourself, you can be in the middle, you know, as much to yourself, as much to others. But I think about being compassionate to oneself and to others, I think it moves. You have really seen to move. And also to accept our limits. To see that sometimes we can go beyond our limits and sometimes we cannot. I mean, when I used to be a nun in Korea, uh, because I was a little exotic then, I would be in the newspaper or in magazine, and I knew anytime I was in those places, I would get a letter from a young Korean person asking me for money. Because I was a Westerner, I must be rich. And then I would kind of, generally I did not, I might have five pounds. So generally I would send them five pounds and say, well, that's all I have, you know, that I can give you. I don't have more. I'm very sorry. And I was very aware. I would go into this huge daydreaming about, you know, I could tell my father and my mother and maybe they could do this and that, and then they could help them. And I, I generally came back to acceptance that in this situation, I couldn't do anything because I did not have money, and that's what they wanted. But at all the time, if somebody needs something and I can give it, then I will try to do that. So I think we really have to see there is not just one way to be loving, kind, to be compassionate, but in a way that's why it's about being creative. It's kind of creatively responding, wisely creatively responding to the different conditions, inner conditions meeting outer conditions. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. No, you see, when you do a, a, like a loving-kindness meditation retreat, generally you'll spend at least a day or two on yourself. So you can spend the whole day on yourself. So I think, again, there is no... Uh, generally, when we present it, you, have to, you present it with the whole, because we do it just in a day. So I'm trying to say, you start with yourself, then you do that. You know, then I kind of try to bring... The, so that you have an idea of what it's about. But if you were doing a retreat of it, sometimes the, the teachers might spend one, two, or three days just on yourself, and then move on. Because I think it's an important factor that, in a way, we, it's kind of really important to be able to love ourselves. And to me, what's the weird thing that happens is that often we don't love ourselves. If we don't love ourselves, it means that we are stuck 24 hours a day with somebody we don't like, which, I mean, is a bit tough. But, you see, what is the quality of love? When we love something, when we love somebody, what's the quality? And the quality is of lightness. The quality is of warmth. And so, if you were to love yourself, then you could feel warm all the time because there is already this person here to do it towards. 
And then it could, of course, also go to others. I think we have to be careful to think, if I love myself, then I'm not going to love others. I personally would say it's the opposite. If you love yourself, then you can love others. But again, it's kind of, how do I love myself? Is it a kind of, a, again, a, a tight, identifying love? Or is it a warm, open love? So that's why I think what is important is to look a little beyond the idea we have of ourselves. I am like this, I'm like that. If I am like this, I'm a lovable person. If I am not like this, I am not a lovable person. It's interesting how it's very conditional. But to me, this is the greatest gift you can give to anybody, is to love somebody unconditionally. That doesn't mean everything goes. But it means you start with an open field. And then as you love the person, you can say, hey, no, that's not on. That's OK. So then you can cultivate that love. But if you start from the point of condition, I love you, but you must do this. Then they say, OK, I'll do that, but you must do that. And then you go into what I call competition love. You know? But if you start by, and that's where I think love starts by acceptance. Accepting yourself, the good bit, the bad bits. And then if you accept it all, then you can work with it. But if you don't accept it all, then it will be very difficult to work with it. Okay, then. There'll be some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.